You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Well, good morning, everybody. Oh, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? We're very lucky to live in such a perfect country. Uh, we've been running through on and off, I think, over the last three or four months, uh, a sermon series on the Gospel of John, the Book of John. And it's been, in, it's been little interludes here and there. And Steve told me we were up to chapter 7 this week. And so that's what today's message is going to be about. We're going to read John chapter 7 and explore the meaning of it. It's probably a, a chapter that you've read before. It's a beautiful chapter. Uh, but first, I want to just uh, remind me and everyone where we're up to in the book. What's been happening so far? So this is the fourth book of the New Testament, the book of John, written by one of Jesus' disciples, John, and uh, it's, it's my favourite book in the Bible, I think, or certainly in the New Testament. Does anyone else have John as their favourite New Testament book? We've got a few there. It's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, and it starts with incredible words in chapter 1, with the word, Jesus, being made known as God himself and creating the entire universe. Uh, and it moves in chapter 1 into this word, becoming a man and living among us. And then him coming to John the Baptist and being seen to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. By the way, all these pictures were created by Dali too, artificial intelligence. Um, then it moves into chapter 2 and Jesus does a, his first recorded miracle or sign as John calls it. And John tells us seven signs and at the end of the book he says why he shared those signs with his readers. It's so that they would know that Jesus was the Christ and had come from God and would put their faith in him. And then Jesus after that went to the temple in Jerusalem and saw money changers and uh, sellers cheating people and he turned over the tables and said the famous words, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, which of course was a, uh, a prophecy, I guess, about his death and resurrection rather than the physical temple. And then in chapter 3, the Jewish leader Nicodemus came to Jesus at night in the dark. There's always themes of light and dark throughout John. And Jesus said, you can't see God. You can't be part of the, God, king, the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And that image of water comes up. And that's an image that runs throughout the book of John. And then Jesus goes to a well in Samaria and meets a woman and talks to her. And he says to her, whoever gives... Whoever drinks the water that I give him will never go thirsty again and will have eternal life. And then Jesus does another sign where he uh, heals a man's uh, son from a distance. And that idea of life, which also runs throughout the book of John. John has a lot about life in it. It talks about eternal life. It's a, it's a running theme. And then the book moves into chapter 5 where Jesus goes to a pool in Jerusalem and on the Sabbath, which is uh, the day that Jews weren't allowed to work, he heals the man and tells him to pick up his mat and walk. And that, amazingly, sets off a chain of events which is ultimately going to lead to the death of Jesus because the leaders of the time believed that Jesus had done something terribly evil by healing a man because he did work on a day he wasn't meant to work. And so that then begins a series of events that leads to the death of Jesus. And Jesus knows that those events are coming. 
And Jesus then leaves Jerusalem and he meets a crowd of people, 5,000 men and women and children. And he, they're hungry. They listen to him all day. And then he takes five loaves of bread and two fish and somehow he feeds thousands and thousands of people. He then crosses over the Sea of Galilee. People follow him realizing he's gone far away because they want more food. And they come to him and he says, I am the bread of life. You came to me because you wanted physical food, but I'm the bread of life. Our fathers had manna in the desert. So in the time of the Exodus, God provided food to the people, but now Jesus is the real food. And so that's what's been happening in the book of John up to chapter 7, which is where we're up to today. And chapter 7 begins with these words. After this, so after all these events, after Jesus had just said he's the bread of life, Jesus travelled around Galilee and he wanted to stay out of Judea where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. So Jesus is up north, you can see in Galilee there, and he's travelling around Galilee wanting to avoid Jerusalem and Judea down south because he knows if he goes there, people are going to want to kill him. And then it moves into into verse 2 of chapter 7 and says, but soon it was time for the Jewish festival of booths or shelters. And actually um, that soon is six months So there were six months between verse 1 and verse 2, and that's not even recorded in the book of John, but you can find it in the book of Mark. And so that leads to John chapter 7, and uh, all the amazing words we're about to hear from Bev. Do you want to come up and read the chapter for us? But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters, and Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. And Jesus replied, now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go any time. The world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to this festival because my time has not yet come. And after saying these things, Jesus remained in Galilee. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went, though secretly staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some argued, he's a good man, but others said, he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favourably about him in public, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Then... Midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him. How does he know so much when he hasn't been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, My message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves, but a person who seeks to honour the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. 
Moses gave you the law, but none of you obeys it. In fact, you are trying to kill me. And the crowd replied, you're demon-possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath too when you obey Moses' law of circumcision. Actually, this tradition of circumcision began with the patriarchs long before the law of Moses. For if the correct time for circumcising your son falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and you do it so as not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so you can judge correctly. Some of the people who lived in Jerusalem started to ask each other, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? But here he is speaking in public and they say nothing to him. Could our leaders possibly believe he is the Messiah? But how could he be? For we know where this man comes from. When the Messiah comes, he will simply appear. No one will know where he comes from. And while Jesus was teaching in the temple, he called out, Yes, you know me and you know where I come from. But I'm not here on my own. The one who sent me is true and you don't know him. But I know him because I come from him and he sent me to you. And then the leaders tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Many among the crowds at the temple believed in him. After all, they said, would you expect the Messiah to do miraculous signs than this man has done? And when the Pharisees heard that the crowds were whispering such things, they and the leading priests sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. But Jesus told them, I will be with you only a little longer, then I will return to the one who sent me. You will search for me, but not find me, and you cannot go where I am going. And the Jewish leaders were puzzled by this statement, where is he planning to go, they asked. Is he thinking of leaving the country and going to the Jews in other lands? Maybe he will even teach the Greeks. What does he mean when he says, you will search for me but not find me and you cannot go where I am going? On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. When the crowds heard him say this, some of them declared, surely this man is the prophet we've been expecting. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others said, but he can't be. Will the Messiah come from Galilee? 
for the scriptures clearly state that the Messiah will be born of the royal line of David in Bethlehem, the village where King David was born. So the crowd was divided about him and some even wanted him arrested, but no one laid a hand on him. And when the temple guards returned without having arrested Jesus, the leading priests and the Pharisees demanded, why didn't you bring him in? We have never heard anyone speak like this, the guards responded. Thank you, Bev. Good reading, hey. <laughs> I don't think there were any mistakes in all of that. So clear. So this is a, a picture of me back in 2001, uh, 22 years ago. There I am getting married to Nicole. Um, and I think at this stage I had just put the wrong ring on her finger and now she's putting the right ring on my finger. <laughs> on that day we both said, I do. And you know what that means, don't you? When you're at a wedding and someone, the bride says, I do, it's a good thing, right? You know what it means. You know why she says it. So we said, I do on that day. I heard about a wedding where the bride said, um, I do. And the whole wedding got cancelled when she said those words. And this was uh, in the Church of England in, in England. So anyone have an idea how, how this could be? What do you reckon, Neil? So you know that part of the wedding which we all sort of gloss over? If anyone objects to this marriage and this wedding... Speak now or forever hold your peace. That's when the bride stepped forward and said, I do, I object. And uh, I won't tell you why she objected, but she had just found out something a few minutes earlier that meant that she shouldn't get married. Um, but the point is, is knowing what happens in a wedding or in a ceremony, that helps with understanding the critical statements that are made throughout it. You sort of have special insight into what words mean when you know what's happening behind the scenes, don't you? And this is definitely true for the Festival of Booths. So the Bible reading we just read happened at a time in Jerusalem when they had something called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Shelters. And understanding what's happening in that festival really helps bring this passage to light. So the Festival of Booths we're going to look at now and sort of learn all about it. I didn't know much about it before preparing for this sermon. Has anyone ever seen the Festival of Booths? There you go. It's a, it's a yearly festival. And uh, you can see it's been in The Chosen. There's a, a scene during the festival in The Chosen. And it's one of three key festivals that Jewish people celebrate every single year. One of the three pilgrimage festivals where all men in ancient times who lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem had to travel to Jerusalem for the festival. The first of these festivals was Passover. That happened every March, approximately. And that remembers the time that there were slaves in Egypt and death came to the land of Egypt and passed over the houses of Israel and the people could be free. The second festival was Pentecost, the Thanksgiving for the harvest, which was about 50 days later after the Passover. And then the third key festival for Jewish people, which was directly after the Day of Atonement, when... Uh, uh, a lamb or an animal was sacrificed for the forgiveness of the people. Um, 
they would have the festival of booths, which was a seven-day festival where everyone would build temporary structures out of branches. They'd get olive branches and tree branches, build them up into little tents and sleep under them for seven days. Kind of a really fun festival, I, I think, particularly probably for kids. And it would be a real celebration, a real happy festival. This festival had existed from about 1,500 BC. So it came from the time of the Exodus, when the Israelite people had been freed from slavery and were travelling through the wilderness of Sinai. There's a, a photograph of, of the Sinai wilderness. And uh, so it was from the time of the law of Moses. And in fact, you can read about it in Leviticus 23, in the Old Testament. God gives this command to the people. Live in temporary shelters so that your descendants will know that you lived in temporary shelters when you were brought out of Egypt. God did that because he wanted people to remember that they had lived temporary, temporarily and they could be thankful for that. They could be thankful for their freedom. Leviticus 23 also says, or God also commands, that they use this ceremony or this festival to rejoice. It's about being thankful, thanking God. And they certainly had a lot to thank God about. Think about the people in Israel. They were in Egypt, they were slaves, and they had just been rescued. They had a huge, huge amount to thank God for. They had gone from slavery into freedom. They also could thank God because he was present with them. You remember there was the tabernacle that they had built, a large tent where God would come and his presence would be there with the people so they could know God was with them. He was guiding them as well. They could thank him for his guidance. Remember that in those times, God manifests himself in a pillar of cloud and fire that the people could follow so they would know where to go, the path to follow. So they could thank God for his guidance. And out there in the wilderness, you can look at it, it's, it's uh, dry. There's not much food there. And so they were hungry, but God provided them every day food in the morning bread-like substance that they called manna to eat. So they could thank God for the food he was providing that was sustaining them. And out in that sort of wilderness, it is incredibly dry. There's not much water. And they were thirsty. And you need, of course, water for life. So they could thank God for the water he would provide. There were two occasions in the time of the Exodus where God provided water from a rock. Water gushed out of the rock to the thirsty people. And so that was a time for thanking God the Festival of Booths. Every year to thank God for his rescue from Egypt, for his presence among them, for the guidance he gives, for the food he provides, for the water, the life-sustaining water he provides. That was the point of the Festival of Booths. And it was celebrated from 1,500 BC onwards, from the time of the Exodus, pretty much continuously every year, except for a short time where it got forgotten. So if you remember about 590 BC, the Israelites in Jerusalem and Judah got invaded by Babylon and pulled out, taken, dragged away in chains in exile to Babylon, where, where much of uh, their law and their, their religion was forgotten. But they did hold on to it and they came back 70 years later when they were allowed back and they reread the law of Moses and they discovered, rediscovered the festival of booths. And you can read about that in the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah. This is, uh, this is what it says. So the people had just returned from exile from Babylon and were rebuilding Jerusalem. On October the 9th, the family leaders and the priests met with Ezra. 
As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. Amazing, isn't it? There they are reading the Bible and they find, oh, we're meant to be building shelters tonight and living in a shelter. So the people cut branches and used them to build shelters on their roofs, in their courtyards, in the courtyard of God's temple, in the square just inside the water gate. Everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival and there was a time that they were filled with great joy. Great story, isn't it? A rediscovery of the Festival of Booths. And just as I read that, it, it reminded me of how we're meant to respond to Scripture. When we become Christians, when we grow up knowing God, over time we learn how God wants us to live. We read the Bible. It teaches us the way God wants us to live, how he wants us to act. And when we do that, when we read those, those words about, from God commanding us how to live, we're meant to respond there and then. It's meant to affect how we live today. We, if we're living in a way that's contrary to God's way and we discover it today, we're meant to change today. And that's what the people did back in Nehemiah's time. They discovered they were meant to have a festival, so they went and did it straight away. And that's what we're meant to do. There's a, a book I read as a teenager called In His Steps. And it's about that. It's about a church that, that uh, really enters into deep study of the Bible and, and the way of Jesus and, and how it changes their lives when they make commitments to follow what God asked them to do no matter what. So the, the festivals were restarted in Nehemiah's time and Ezra's time. And by the time of Jesus, every September or October when they had the festival, crowds of hundreds of thousands or even millions would descend on Jerusalem for this seven-day festival. And during the festival, they had daily religious ceremonies. And one of the key symbols of thanksgiving within this festival related to water. So it's a, a picture there of the pool of Siloam from the, the Gion Spring in Jerusalem, or an image of what, it's, what they think it might have looked like. And uh, water was really important for the Festival of Booths. Remember, God provided water for the people in the Exodus. And so every day they would have something called the water libation ceremony, and they still do that to this day. The priest would go down to the pool of Siloam, where the water source of Jerusalem was, and he would draw water into a pitcher. Then he would walk back towards the temple up the long path winding up to the temple, up many stairs, probably crowds of thousands of people watching, and he would come to the temple, and there he would pour water on a rock to remember that God provided water. And when he finished, the crowd would erupt with these words from Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So every day, for six days, this would happen. And then on the seventh day, there'd be a change. The final day, this was the, the climax of the festival where everyone was really happy, great food, they would have this ceremony the priest would come up with his water, he'd pour on the rock, and then the crowd would erupt into these words from Isaiah 44. For I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your descendants and my blessings upon your offspring. Beautiful ceremony, isn't it? 
So imagine this scene then. This has been going on for six days and it's now the seventh day, the final day, the happiest day of the ceremony. The priest has gathered the water. Large crowd is watching. Silence descends over the whole area in Jerusalem. The priest begins to pour the water onto the rock. People ready themselves to shout out these words. For I will pour water upon him who is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your descendants. People are getting ready to say that in the silence. And then the silence is broken by an unexpected man in the crowd shouting out. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Can you imagine that? Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Jesus cried out right at that crucial moment maybe. The scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Think about what Jesus is saying there. He was saying that he could provide like only God can provide. In in Numbers, uh, the Lord said to Moses, speak to that rock before the people's eyes and it will pour out water. Only God can do that. And Jesus is saying, He's like God. He was saying that he could rescue. He could rescue only like God could rescue. In, in Isaiah 12, the words that had been said those previous six days, people would shout out that with joy you'll draw from the wells of salvation. Jesus is saying that he provides salvation. That's only something God can do. Only God can rescue people. Jesus was saying that like God, he was needed for life. In Jeremiah 2, God says this, My people have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They have dug their own cistern, a broken cistern that cannot hold water. Jesus is saying he's like God, he's needed for life. He's the living water that everyone needs. He was saying he was from God, he was like God, and that he was God. And that you need him. That's what he was saying when he called that out. He called it out to the people then, but it's not just meant to be for people then. That is a timeless message. It's for all of us. Are you missing something? Are you broken? Are you thirsty? That call from Jesus is for you. He's inviting you to come and drink. Only he can quench your thirst. Jesus can give meaning and purpose in a way that no one else can. Only he can rescue us. From the, and the rescue we need is rescue from our sin. 
He's the water that can give true life. Only Jesus can do that. That's what he's calling out about. It's for everyone. It's worth looking at how the people in John 7 reacted to Jesus. They were the brothers of Jesus early on in verse 5. They didn't believe him. Maybe later down the track after his death and resurrection they would, but at that time they didn't, didn't respond to him well, did, did they? They didn't believe him. Then when he came to Jerusalem, the crowd, well, the crowd, there were various reactions. Some of the crowd thought he was a good man, which is, is true, but there's a lot more to him than that, isn't there? Some thought he was a fraud, though. Some even wanted to kill him. All sorts of different reactions, aren't there? There were some in the crowd that started questioning, is he the one sent from God? Is he the Messiah? So they reacted all sorts of different ways. But it's not just about people back then, this verse. It's about people now. How have you responded to Jesus? How do you react to him? How do we react to him? Do we believe him when, we say, when he says we need to come to him? Do we believe him? Because he can quench our thirst. He can, he can make all that difference. But it's not just about what we get out of it. He, he changes us. We come to Jesus and we have our thirst quenched, but we also become changed. Jesus said, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. But he's not just going to quench our thirst. He's going to give us living water that will flow from out of us. Living water from your heart, flowing out. What do you reckon that means? What does it mean for living water to flow from your heart? Anyone want to share some thoughts? matter for Christ's sake. Yep, it's good. Anyone else want to share what it means to have living water flowing from your heart? The fruit of the Spirit being present and evident coming out of our lives because the Holy Spirit's in there. So when we cooperate with God, he works those fruits. Anyone else want to share what it means? Something of a capacity to love others like God does with grace. It's good. Other thoughts? I I just think for me it's it, it's a feeling of pure joy. And, and hopefully that overflows to others as well. That's very good, yeah. Yep. Other, other thoughts to share? Um, I think being satisfied, so not desiring certain things in the world that others desire. That's good. Anyone else want to share some thoughts?
So those are, those are all excellent, excellent thoughts. There's so much in that. It can, there's so much depth of meaning in the words of Jesus there. Um, and we could probably spend hours exploring it and thinking about what it might mean. Jesus went on to say directly after that, or John went on to say directly after that, some of what Jesus meant, and, and it's all connected to what you've just shared. In verse 39, John wrote, When Jesus said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. So it's something to do with the Holy Spirit, isn't it? And how he changes us. It's pretty amazing. I think Jesus is saying, God, the Holy Spirit, is going to be present in us, in our hearts. He's going to be given to us to be part, to walk with us, to be present in us so that he can flow out of us. God's presence in us means that we can reveal God's presence to other people. That's a pretty amazing thing. We can bring God's message to other people. God's message for the whole world is a message of forgiveness, of salvation. And that's something that we do, that we can do because we have this living water coming from our heart, flowing from us. It's a message about life, overcoming death. God brings life. Wherever he goes, he uses us to bring life. That's a picture of the Nile. And when a river flows through a desert, it brings life, it brings greenery. We bring spiritual life. Our hearts flow out God's spirit. That's the promise. So there's a, a challenge and a prayer in those words of Jesus. These are words about our present and our future. We're called to come to Jesus, to believe in him. He'll quench our thirst when we do that. He'll give us the meaning and the purpose that we need. He'll bring us the life, the forgiveness that we need. And our challenge and our prayer is also, though, to let those streams of living water, the Holy Spirit in us, flow out to the world so that we can bring life where we go. That's the message of John 7 as I see it. Can I ask Neil to come up and pray? And we'll follow with a final song after that. Blessed assurance. We've heard the good news. Oh, sorry, guys. We've heard the good news of the gospel this morning. And in Mark 3 and in John 7, Jesus is angry and frustrated with people because they're stubborn. They're stubborn hearts. They're locked in to the old thinking and the old ways. Jesus is calling us this morning and he's inviting us. He says, 
Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. The word will spit you out and process you like a shredder. Jesus says, I love you, I accept you. You are so precious and valuable in my sight. Blessed assurance. How do we get that blessed assurance? We read that word of God. We read those promises. You are loved this morning. You are greatly valued. I'm going to pray. And I invite everyone here. Graham, I know I would love to pray for you also. I would. Anne here. Wayne, Marin, and others, and anyone that you know in here who you believe believes in Jesus. Hallelujah. We believe. Believe, repent, and believe the good news. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you may have life in his name. Accept the good news, just believe. Father, Lord God, I thank you for your blessed Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, that you're here, Holy Spirit. I'd ask that you would bring conviction this morning, bring encouragement, bring hope, I speak healing, I speak wholeness here in Jesus' name. If there's anyone here this morning out of respect for God, I ask that everyone stand who's physically able to, please. Everyone stand this morning. Bible talks about that lifting holy hands unto the Lord. If you're able to do that and you're comfortable with that this morning, just ask you to raise your hands. I'm not talking about speaking in a foreign language or anything here. I'm talking about acknowledging who God is in your life and bringing him honour and submitting to him. It's a gesture Thank you, folks. Let's put out the call here this morning. If there's anyone here this morning who's heard the gospel message and they realise that they've tried to do things their own way and it's failed them. If anyone realises here this morning they, they know their need of a saviour, that they're not perfect. If anyone realises here this morning that they who tried to do things their way and they want to follow God's way. They know they need a sin bearer to put things right with God. Just ask if you'd raise your hand if that's you this morning. Thank you, I see that hand. Right. If there's anyone else who wants a touch from God this morning, who wants that refreshment, that the scripture is talking about, about those rivers of living water. I'd ask you to raise your hand this morning. 
and ask Graham to pray with us. Marion, can you come out the front, please? Also, Wayne, anyone else from the leadership team here at BCC this morning? If you'd like us to pray over you this morning, I ask you to come out now. Right, guys, you can pray for me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mary, come pray for this lady, please. Right, don't be afraid. There is brokenness in my life. And I'm sure it's the same for you. So, Lord, we recognize you as our God. Jesus, we come to you now in worship and in song. Bless everyone here today. Take us out into this world to flow your living water to the world that we encounter. Amen.